Good evening. My name is Ellen Baker, and this evening our scripture reading is from 1 Peter. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21 from the English Standard Version. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everyone. Hope everyone is well. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, We haven't made a big deal about it, but the series that we are in is 1 Peter, and uh, we're calling it Faith, Hope, and Love, and we cover those topics and a few more. There are a couple of spots where we talk about things that I haven't heard talked about yet in this church, like the end times. Uh, So I look forward to that. I think that's going to be really, really fun. Uh, Wait, actually, before I go, I just wanted to uh, acknowledge the Lotus family who are here. On Friday, we had a really packed out service. It was a wonderful way to remember a great guy and uh, to tell his stories. And uh, at some point, I don't think there was a dry eye in the room. So really um, meaningful to be able to have that time together. So hello, Lotus family. Uh, What I want to do today is I want to start out by talking a little bit about uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter. I happened upon this picture of Peter Rabbit, or Peter the Rabbit, because I typed in Apostle Peter, and he was like on the first page of Google Images. (laughs) Somehow he made it. Peter was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. He was married. We know that for a fact. And we assume he had kids because married men had kids. And he's also mentioned as an elder. And uh, almost all elders had kids. He worked with his father. And he also worked with fellow disciples, James and John. uh, Worked with them before they were disciples together. Uh, We guess he's about middle class uh, and uh, uh, sort of a blue-collar type guy. He was originally, some of you may not know this, was a disciple of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And he hung around Jesus for about a year and, uh, before he left John and started officially following Jesus and also officially leaving the fishing business. Uh, he had some experiences. He was with Jesus at Jesus' first miracle in Cana. When Jesus turned, he outed himself by turning water to wine. He was with Jesus at the transfiguration. Uh, That's a word. 
and he was with Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter is also a guy that got to walk on water. He was a wholehearted person. He was a blundering idiot. He was, I think in a word, impetuous. At the same time, he was fearful, very fearful of people. He was the first to promise Jesus his life. He was the first to take up arms to fight for Jesus. He also rebuked Jesus, and then Jesus rebuked him right back. He denied Jesus three times, according to Jesus' word. And then after uh, Jesus uh, resurrected, he was singled out by Jesus. uh, And it was, tell everyone and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter that you saw me. Uh, And then he was confronted by Jesus himself on the beach where Peter had returned to the fishing business. And they had a confrontation where Jesus asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then Jesus predicted Peter's death. Uh, After um, Jesus was ascended, uh, Peter stood up to authorities, defying their orders. So he practiced quite a bit of bravery. Uh, He also, uh, on the other hand, caved under Jewish leaders' pressure, and he denied the gospel of grace publicly, and therefore he was publicly rebuked by the Apostle Paul. That's in the book of Galatians. And so uh, those are just some highlights about the Apostle Peter who wrote this letter to the churches. And uh, here's, I think, the best summary sentence uh, that I can find that for me uh, really explains who Peter was uh, through and through. And this is a sentence, a phrase that he says to a lame person uh, who was uh, next to him as Peter walked by. He asked Peter for money, and this was Peter's response. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And we're going to come back to this. I'm going to read it one more time. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I have a song that sings in my head. I remember learning how to sing this song. Anybody else have a song about this? Yeah? A few of us, right? Okay. The central concept of the passage that was read for us is the word obey. Obey is not my favorite word. It's not how I'm wired. I feel like I'm wired to uh, question obedience. I'm wired to question the box and to think outside the box. Um, I don't love words like discipline or obey or authority. I'm more of the why guy. But what I've come to understand about obedience over time is this. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and lastly there is self-control. Self-control, I have heard, is like the walls of a city. And it's what holds everything else together. Such that if your love fails or if your kindness fails, if your gentleness fails, as long as you have self-control, you can love well. You can function well. So it protects you and all those around you from your bad days, from your bad seasons. You need self-control. 
control. It's sort of the final safety net of our character. And that's the family uh, of words uh, of obey. When you know how to obey, then you are, I think, a safe person. People can trust you because they know at the end of the day, you will obey. You will do the right thing. You may not have all the answers to all the questions you have. You don't quite understand it all. But you'll do the right thing. You'll obey. You have self-control. You don't feel loving. You're still a safe person. You're not happy. You're a safe person. You're not patient. You're safe. It's okay to interact with you. It's okay to be with you. You can keep going in life. And others can keep going with you because you obey. And so this is the final lesson that I'm learning about obedience. That it's central. It's a foundational trait for us to have. Three things I want us to look at today. Impaired judgment, impartial judge, and imperishable love. Impaired judgment, impartial judge, and in conclusion, imperishable love. And I, I've, I love this word, imperishable. I realize my heart wants imperishable. Okay. First, impaired judgment. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. That word prepare Uh, That's the word gird up. So imagine everybody's wearing robes or skirts and you're getting ready to take action. Like running the Mercer Island half marathon. You're not going to run in your robe. Okay, you're going to gird it up. That's what that means. You're getting yourself ready by literally lifting up your clothes so you can run. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here is some interesting language that Peter is using. He's saying we're not ready and that we're not sober-minded. And he's encouraging us to be that way. Two more verses, uh, one from Jeremiah, one from Luke, to help us understand what Peter means. Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. And then Luke 6.39, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Now, all three of these verses, they are describing the dynamics, I believe, of addiction, impairment, and denial. Here's what uh, an addiction is. An addiction is you have some sort of pain, and you don't know how to legitimately address that pain or deal with it. It's too painful, it's too deep, it's too close. You feel weak, and so you develop a coping mechanism to deal with the pain. And then, because pain persists, the coping mechanism persists, and then you find yourself becoming dependent on the coping mechanism itself. 
And then that coping mechanism creates more pain in your life. And so first you start out with pain. And then you get dependent on the coping mechanism for that original pain. And that dependency creates more pain. And it locks you into a cycle of dependency on the coping mechanism. And you never ever actually get to address the real and first pain in your life that led you to the coping mechanism in the first place. That's called an addiction. You're locked into a habit. You can't get yourself out. And that's what the verses are talking about. You're not sober-minded. What is sin? Uh, great, my best definition of sin is illegitimate means of meeting legitimate needs. Your desire to address that pain is absolutely legitimate. But if you address it illegitimately, then you get dependent on the illegitimate means of addressing that pain, that sin in the first place. And then you get dependent on your illegitimate means. And then that further creates more pain. And so that's the second verse. My people have committed a double sin. Not only are they rejecting me, they need me. I'm the legitimate response to their pain. No, but they're hewing out cisterns for themselves. And those cisterns can't hold water. They're illegitimate. Illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. And Jesus asked the question in Luke, can the blind lead the blind? You're blind and not able to lead other people for sure, but you don't even know that you're blind. Who's more dangerous, a blind person or a blind person who doesn't believe they're blind? That's addiction. And when you find yourself in addiction, and I personally believe that all of us have addictions in our lives. It's not what our society necessarily legitimizes as a a legitimate addiction. But we all have addictions, coping mechanisms for pain, illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. It can be as simple and as innocent as sugar. It can be coffee. It can be the internet or screens. Right? We all have coping mechanisms for pain. But what happens when you find yourself in sin or in addiction or in some sort of double down cycle? It does what they call uh, impaired, creates a situation of impaired judgment. I heard this week uh, that. Folks in Alcoholics Anonymous, they call impaired judgment stinking thinking. That's when you've been drinking at a party, and then you're about to decide if you're okay to drive or not. But by the time you're deciding whether you are ready to drive home or not, your judgment is already impaired. And so that judgment, that decision you make, cannot be trusted. And so the decision to decide if you're okay to drive has to be handed over to somebody else because you're stinking thinking. 
The only way to have a safe evening is to hand over the power of that decision and judgment to somebody else. Because your thinking is thinking. Your judgment is impaired. Now, not everybody will do that. And if you don't do that, then you begin the process of denial behavior. Denial behavior is when you refuse to acknowledge the impairment that's caused by the addiction. So you have pain, and then you have addiction, and then you have impaired judgment, but you got to deny all of it. You refuse to believe that you have a problem. And then you have to now engage in behavior that tries to prove to yourself and to the world that you don't have a problem. So, for example, let's say you have a drinking problem, okay? And that drinking problem is perpetuated by a pain in your life that you're not actually addressing. And then your judgment is impaired because of this drinking problem. But in order to deny to yourself and to the world that you have a drinking problem, what do you have to do? You have to keep drinking. Because if you stop drinking, what are you doing? You're acknowledging that you have a problem with drinking. And if you acknowledge that you have a problem with drinking, you're acknowledging that you have a coping mechanism that you're dependent on. Well, what are you coping? You have pain in your life. And now you have to address that pain. And you don't want to or you can't. And so we engage in denial behavior. And denial behavior is what leads to death. Uh, In my research, I read this one example that I thought was very interesting, and it's very clear. Let's say there's somebody at your workplace that you feel an attraction to, but you're in denial about it. You're not admitting it to yourself. And because of that, what do you do? You can't stop being normal with that person you have an attraction to. And so you have to go out for drinks after work. You have to go out to lunch with them. You have to say it's okay to stop by and chat all the time. You have to. Because if you actually don't do that, then you'd be acknowledging there's a problem you need to address. But then if you engage in that denial behavior over time, that leads to something, and now you have a really big problem. That's denial behavior. I want to read you a little section from Lauren Larkin. She has a little piece called Silencing the Messy Conscience. She says this, You might not know it from the outside, but I'm a mess. That's not a celebratory statement. It's just the truth. I am a mess, but not based on my works. I'm a hard worker, actually, from morning till night. If anyone were to say anything to me, it wouldn't be work more. It would be, I'm worried about you because you're working too hard. You wouldn't necessarily call me a mess because I'm not a quote-unquote mess, at least not on the outside. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because my mess isn't external but internal. My mess is locked in my conscience under the stern eye of a horrible prison warden that drives me on relentlessly. My conscience is easily pricked by the accusations of the devil. I actively try to prove those accusations wrong by my works. 
I'm a mess. Because of the chaos on the inside, the storm that wages violently, the guilt that drives me to fear sitting down to do only my best to, to care about and do everything. Here's what Lauren Larkin is saying. She has this voice in her head that's always accusing her, telling her she's no good and she's not good enough and she's terrible. And in order to not acknowledge that reality, she has to counter that with denial behavior. She has to keep on working and work harder and harder and harder. She is addicted to work because she has this voice accusing her of being lazy. And so her works become denial behavior. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. So the warning here, the simple warning here is there's something I'm about to tell you. There's something that's about to come. It's a legitimate way of addressing some very important things in your life. But you've been living a life of addiction. You're not sober-minded. You're not thinking right. You're stinking thinking. You're engaged in these addictive behaviors. You're locked in cycles. You have denial behavior in your life. Ready? I'm going to tell you something. This is what Peter is saying. Okay? He's going to tell us something. Verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Uh, This word impartially is a little Greek word, and it literally means without receiving the face of. That means God's unwilling to see anyone's face. And the English translation is impartial, that he's above a bribe or favoritism. Okay? That means that he cannot be manipulated at all. Another way that Peter says this is that God is holy. The word holy means absolutely different or separated, set apart. God is impartial because he is holy. He's not vulnerable to manipulation the way we are. He's not impressed. He doesn't have needs. He's not hoping to receive anything from us. Because God is impartial, Peter is saying that God is therefore impervious to our works. That is, Whatever he sees, our deeds, as Peter calls it, he has full insight into who we are and what we do and why we do what we do. He understands that our actions, our lives, our deeds are born of impairment and denial. We're trying to manipulate each other, and we're trying to cause him to view us a certain way. We're trying to manipulate his perception of us. We're trying to justify ourselves. Who judges 
impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. I could live my whole life trying to be good, trying to be a nice person, trying to do the right thing. And God says, I understand you on a deep level, Peter. I am impartial. I am impervious to manipulation. You can't change my mind with your morality. You can't be a good enough of a person. I know what you're doing. And your deeds are complicated. Your motives are multi-layered. You are locked in addictive behavior. You're locked in impure motives. I see you exactly as you are. And so we are called to fear him. Conduct yourselves with fear. And fearing God is living then with this awareness of God's imperviousness to manipulation by our works. We can't be good enough and put God in debt. I can't give myself an advantage over you by being more competent than you or being more good than you. None of that works on God because he is absolutely, completely holy. The phrase that comes to my mind when I think about this is God is calling shenanigans. I spend all day judging myself. I have this voice that's causing me to do good all day. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good pastor. I want to be a good leader. I want to be a good friend. I want to be a good citizen. And God says, shenanigans. None of that matters, Peter. None of that is doing anything for me. What I want from you more than anything else is for you to understand that it is by my grace. And that's what Peter started with. To the grace, for the grace that is going to be revealed to you in Jesus Christ. Everything apart from works, it's shenanigans. Here we are trying to save ourselves by our work. And God says, nope, I'm impartial. It doesn't affect me at all. And now we come back to the phrase that, that I think summarizes the Apostle Peter's life. When he says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I don't have anything. I don't have silver and gold. What I thought I had, it's not actually silver or gold. It's my own coping mechanisms. It's my own illegitimate ways of trying to feel better about myself. I work hard, and God says, so what? So what? I, I come to church, so what? He doesn't care. It doesn't do it for him. But I'm a good person. So what? I don't care. And then Peter came to a point, the apostle Peter came to a point where he realized that he's got nothing. He has nothing to offer God. He has nothing that God says, oh man, I want to use him because look at that. He's got nothing. 
And so he's able from his heart to say, silver and gold I have none. But what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So I want to give you three steps to applying uh, this truth today. The first one is admit. And I think this is uh, a hard part. Admit, okay, if Peter is encouraging us to be sober, admit that you have a problem. Admit that you care too much about what people think about you. Admit that you lead with your resume. Admit that you have this dialogue, inner dialogue in yourself, in your own mind that's causing you to work and work and work and work. Admit that you don't understand grace. Admit that you're judgmental. Admit you have all of this pain and uncertainty in yourself and you don't know how to legitimately address it. Admit that you're in relationships because of your needs, not because you're trying to love them. Admit that love is really hard for you. Admit that your resume isn't actually helping you. Admit that all the wealth you've accumulated isn't helping you. Admit that you are a lost person. Admit that you have problems. Admit that you are engaged in denial behavior. That you don't have silver and gold. That your works, your righteousness is like filthy rags. And God is calling shenanigans on you. Shenanigans. Shenanigans. He sees it all. And then second, submit. Acknowledge that really all you have is his grace. That all of the padding in your life isn't going to actually float you. You need his help. And then do the right thing. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You don't do things because you're awesome or that's just the way you are. You do things because it's the right thing to do. So there's a kind of humility and brokenness in the things that you do. It's no longer denial behavior. It's no longer addiction. It's not your coping mechanism anymore, but it's simply you're doing the right thing. Do the right thing. Let me end with this verse here. Uh, At the end of Peter's life, uh, Peter was very disillusioned. He had um, failed He had denied Jesus three times, and he denied Jesus, not even to a scary guy with a spear or sword. He denied Jesus to a servant girl. He was humiliated, uh, and he uh, returned to the fishing business, and he was on the beach. And at the beach is where Jesus visits him and confronts him as the resurrected Christ and asks him uh, about their relationship, whether he loves him or not. And after they go through that exchange, these, uh, this is uh, uh, Jesus' words to him. 
John 21, 18. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Let me share uh, just my own little story. Um, you know, I've been, I ran today, and I did well. I uh, beat last year's time, and I'm pretty pleased with it. Uh, I wasn't always a marathoner. I used to run a lot of 5Ks and 10Ks and that sort of thing uh, in New York City and other places. Uh, and what I learned was this, that running and running marathons are very, very different things. Just because I know how to do a 5K doesn't mean I know how to run a marathon. And what I've learned in uh, the marathons I've done is that most of the marathon is me doing something I don't want to do. I don't want to do the things that require me, uh, that I do in order to do a marathon. And I'm learning this very similar lesson uh, with leadership. And this is my growth edge right now. I've had leadership moments in my life. You know, I have a pretty good church resume. I uh, helped to start up six different churches on the, in the East Coast. And then I was the director of church planning for the East Coast Conference. And then I was the director of church planning for our, our whole denomination. And I traveled all over the world and the country, helping hundreds and hundreds of pastors uh, figure out how to plant churches, how to start churches. Churches are started, by the way. I know they just are, but they were started at some point. And I have leadership gifts, and I have leadership moments. But adding up all of those experiences and adding up leadership gifts and adding up leadership moments does not a leader make. To be a leader... You have to do things you don't want to do. And I think this is my weakness. I don't want to do the things that a leader has to do. I don't want to obey. I don't want to submit. If you are a father, let me ask you, if you like kids, does that mean you're a good dad? Well, I don't know. If you are married, does that make you a good dad? If you provide for the family, does that make you a good dad? No, all of these pieces, they don't add up to you being a good dad to your kids. To be a really good dad to your kids, most of the stuff that constitutes you being a good dad is doing stuff you don't want to do. And so if somebody says, how can I be a good dad? Say, well, you have to be willing all the time to do things you don't want to do. Then you'll be a great dad. How do I be a good leader? Well, do things all the time that you don't want to do. What about a good mother? All the time, do things you don't want to do. Learn how to obey. Rather than just engaging in things you like or behaviors that you're addicted to or things that are high reward, forget about all of that. 
At some point in your life, you're going to stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. In other words, somebody's going to call you to obey. And I think most of us are not good at obedience. Most of us are engaged in addictive behavior and denial behavior and impaired judgment, and we talk ourselves into it. We justify the things that we do. And on top of that, our culture really encourages us to validate our own feelings and to go find ourselves and actualize. I'm not saying there isn't truth and helpfulness in some of that. But bottom line, just like self-control is the final safety net, bottom line, you have to obey. Whatever you are, if you want to be a good friend, it's not hang out all the time. It's be a good friend by doing things you don't want to do on a regular basis. Just make that the job description. You'll be a great friend. And this is what I'm learning about leadership. Just because I have leadership gifts or I've had moments when I seem to be a leader doesn't mean I'm a good leader. And I'm really asking myself, I'm trying to... Uh, Be open to a new narrative about myself. What does it mean to be a leader? How can I lead our church well? I've been really thinking about this. And I've come to the conclusion, I got to be willing to do the things I don't want to do all the time. Somebody else has to dress me and take me by the hand. Follow me means I'm following somebody else's will, not my own. This was the final lesson that Peter had to learn to follow, to admit, to submit, to obey. Let's end on a gospel note. As obedient children, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was forsaken before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Why do children obey? Because they are already loved. And this is Peter's final, final rationale for us. Obey. Don't be impaired in your judgment. Stop the nonsense with all of that denial behavior, he says. But as obedient children, knowing you are ransomed from that futile way that you inherited from earthly beings, now inherit something far beyond silver and gold, the precious blood of Christ. Know that you are already loved. You don't have to do that nonsense to get loved or to sustain love. You are already loved. Peter understood finally that he could not have purchased God with silver or gold. That is his strengths. That is his works. But God has purchased him with the blood of Jesus Christ. Church, The final call is to obey, to do the things you do not want to do. 
Are you ready for somebody else to dress you and take you by the hand? Would you pray with me? God, I just took a quick inventory of uh, my week. A few things came to mind. And I do see how so much of it is impaired. And uh, there's a frantic sort of self-saving nature to many of the feelings and acts. And uh, some of it does seem like coping mechanisms and addictions. And I confess to you that Probably many of us are like that, and we come to you to admit and to submit and to ask you to teach us how to be already loved so that we can obey. God, we want to do the right thing, not the compulsive thing. Help us to do that. Help us to be your obedient children. And I pray for myself too. I pray that I would be a leader, a good leader for this church. Leader that's learning how to obey and follow. I lift up this church to you. I pray in Jesus' name.